when it comes to at home, you follow the child's lead and you will never go wrong. Listen to what they, a, what they want to talk about, B, what they're reading, that kids ought to be reading, but they can read in that area of passion and, and the parent can listen and say, what, oh yeah, that's Jupiter up in the sky. What, what, I know, and Jupiter has a mass this many times out of earth and they start spouting, and you buy a telescope for that youngster, encourage and nurture that interest. Be ready for the fact that 18 months from now, the telescope will be collecting dust in the closet as they yes. go on to another interest. <laughs> but they, if you listen to what they're interested in and feed that interest, you will never go wrong. Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast. We're your host, Hannah Park. And Catherine Caldwell. As educators, we feel it's our responsibility to reach all students that walk through our door. However, we've realized that every year there are children in our classroom that we feel are put on the back burner because we lack the resources, knowledge, and support to provide for them everything that they need and rightfully deserve. Often these learners are eventually referred to as being gifted, but the problem with that is there's no universal definition of what it means to be gifted which leads to a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of inconsistencies. So knowing that we're not the only educators who feel this way, we've decided to work in tandem with NCAGT to interview entrepreneurs, community leaders, stakeholders, and experts throughout the field of gifted education to uncover the truth about what it truly means to be gifted, spread awareness, and hopefully be an instrument of change. This podcast is for anyone who is seeking to learn more about gifted education, parents, educators, and learners from all walks of life. Our organization is committed to being an instrument of change. Hello and welcome back. We are so excited to share part two of our interview with Rick Corrine. If you have not yet listened to part one, head on back and give it a listen as we discuss more myths and truths associated with gifted learning. Here we go. So, our next myth is a lack of interest in non-academic pursuits. What would you say about that? Uh, again, it goes with the stereotype. The, the bookish, um, nerdy kind of kid is the gifted kid. But when you, when, you look at, when you look at history and you see the people who are, um, are inventive geniuses, those who are creative and productive in, in their breakthrough ideas, Thomas Edison, you know, working in a garage, just tinkering with stuff as a kid. Um, Steve Jobs building the first Apple computer in his garage, literally in his garage. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Steven Spielberg filming stuff just because he loved to take movies and make movies and it turned into adult real world performance. I, again, I think the fact that people do what they are successful at and what feeds their soul. And it's, it's, no more true of gifted kids than of all kids that that often the lack of interest in or um, in academic stuff is because school doesn't do anything for them but they will they will find those things that they're interested in and and nurture them for themselves it may not be seen in the school setting nobody else may observe it but it's it's they, it's not a matter of being interested only in book learning. It's not a matter of just being interested in the report card grades. It's about finding your passion and, and feeding that passion. It makes me think of Hannah and her passion projects. Is that what you're going to talk about? That's what yes. it makes me think of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that um, regular ed teachers in public schools, it's something that they could easily do, taking the time to get to know their gifted learners and finding out in the non-academic world what their passions are and allowing them, I like to call them passion projects, 
So if you have a child that is absolutely, I had one year, I had a kid that was obsessed with soccer, but they would look up the statistics and want to create graphs and all this. So you let them dive into that passion and you can incorporate so many math standards, reading standards, and just let them do it. If they're not reading Charlotte's web, that's okay. That's all right. As long as they're reading. Yes, yes, they're reading, they're learning, and then let them share it. Because so often we see these gifted learners not know how to, I don't you know, communicate with their peers and share what they found. Because a lot of times they're not used to being given the opportunity to speak to all that they are passionate about and share about. So I'm a huge advocate for passion projects. Um, I learn a lot through them. Okay, so our next myth. Gifted learners are capable of learning on their own. Myth or truth? Well, I'll put it this way. I don't want a neurosurgeon working on me who got it on her own. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very true. Teachers make a difference. The educational program a child experiences makes a difference. That's why parents, when they are able to, can invest major resources into a private school setting or relocate to a public school that has a strong academic background. That there really is, it it matters. Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. Teachers make a difference. And so the idea that kids will get it on their own, it's I think it's a myth that's always been with us, but it's exacerbated by this whole insanity of standardized testing and accountability model, because it looks like they already know it, because the ceiling on the test is so low. It's easy for them to do that, but they're not growing. But it looks like they can manage on their own. In fact, the toxic aspect of it is when the administrators say, They'll get it on their own. They'll be fine while they pay attention disproportionately to other students to address those needs, which are legitimate and which need to be addressed. But it's unfair. It's unjust. It's unethical to take that away from those kids. There's got to be an equal opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that goes to like changing the definition of need, like who has need, like just because they're not underperforming and have a need for more academic intervention, they still have a need in other areas. And wouldn't we want them to grow just as much as we want our kids who are, you know, struggling to grow? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how would you say that stakeholders can support this development of giftedness? Um. When it comes to at home, you follow the child's lead and you will never go wrong. I love that. Can listen, you kind of speak more to that? Listen to what they, a, what they want to talk about, B, what they're reading. And I, I will offer one bias I have, and, and it is a bias and, and subject to contradiction, but I think no child under the age of 16 should have a computer alone in their room. It should be in the den, living room, dining room area. Um, And the time on the electronics should be limited, that kids ought to be reading. But they can read in that area of passion. And and the parent can listen and say, what? Oh, yeah, that's Jupiter up in the sky. What? What? I know. And Jupiter has a mass this many times out of Earth. And they start spouting. And you buy a telescope for that youngster encourage and nurture that interest. Be ready for the fact that 18 months from now, the telescope will be collecting dust in the closet as they fall into another interest. (laughs) But they, if you listen to what they're interested in and feed that interest, you will never go wrong. And and be adaptable with their passions as they change. Exactly. Now the, the school setting is more problematic because you're dealing with an adult who has to care for 25 to 30 to 125 to 130 students daily. That's why we need programs. We need outside resources, just as we have programs for kids who have reading needs or, or 
kids from poverty and they have Title I reading programs, just as we have programs for kids with disabilities, because what we want to do is to help them grow and we provide extra resources to do that. We need the same thing for gifted students. North Carolina is incredibly advanced. It's one of the few areas I could say where North Carolina is ahead of the curve compared to other states with our legislation, financial support, and the flexibility. But in a school setting where a classroom teacher looking at a regular heterogeneous class of kids is going to have students, whatever grade level she's at, she's going to have students who are that many years below grade level and some students who are that many years above grade level. And covering that span is humanly impossible, which is why differentiation only goes so far, because if the span is that wide, it's humanly impossible. Even with the best of intentions, it can't be done. 24-7, a teacher cannot do that. And that's why the help, like Program for Disabilities, Title I Reading, and a gifted program or in place to help those students continue to grow. I think it's so important that something needs to be done for K-3 learners in public setting, because like you just said, differentiation can only go so far. And that is all those kids are getting in the majority of public schools throughout North Carolina and in the United States. There's, um, there's nothing there for them. I agree. And if you and and I do think that what Article 9B in North Carolina affords is the not just the license, but the encouragement for school districts to implement programs for those kids. But I would also say conversely, if you've got an expert, if you've got a teacher who is an expert in early childhood education and really gets experiential learning, K-1 even into two is going to be okay for most gifted kids because of the nature of the interaction and the learning. The problem hits at third grade when learning becomes more academic. Mm. Stop learning to read and you start reading to learn. And our kids are advanced. They're ready to move on and read books for fifth graders and sixth graders and seventh graders where other kids are still reading Pat the Bunny because of their characteristics and needs. And that teacher needs help narrowing that range. This is speaking to my soul because I feel like I just talked with Hannah about a situation where I have parents asking for more for their kids. And I do have students in my class who I do think are gifted, but they haven't quite, I mean, just thinking about like scheduling within like with our, you know, AIG teachers meeting with those kids, there's just not a lot of time. And so it is put on the teacher and it's overwhelming and it's, it's a terrible place to be in because I feel like I want to help all of my kids. And I want them all to be pushed and and get what they need. And it's, you know, you're told like, here are some resources, but like you said, as, as above as these kids are, I have other kids as behind. Yes. And that is just like, you're pulled in too many places and wanting to do it all effectively and with fidelity. That's just overwhelming. Yes, it is. It is. And we fail to recognize just how overwhelmed teachers are trying to do that. And if you're a, If you are the kind of person who goes into teaching, for the most part, with some exceptions, you do care about your kids and you take care of that middle group, the the, the kids who are developmentally right with the standards for whom the standards are good quality education experience. And when you've taken care of those kids, you start working with your heart goes out to the kids who are more needy and you work with them, which leaves precious little for those kids who are advanced. Mm -hmm. It's, when, it's the reality. Yeah. And when you have AIG teachers that are like, oh, here's a bunch of resources. That takes time. It takes time to sit and go through curriculums yes, and making sure that you're not just making copies and saying, here's a worksheet, kid, have fun. You know, yeah, do it on your own, <laughs> figure it out on your own. Like we don't want to go there. They'll figure yeah. it out. They've got it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It can be extremely frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. For everybody. Yes for everybody. That's very true. All right. So our next myth is um, that gifted students are easily identifiable. What would you say about that? Well, as any lawyer will tell you, the answer to every question is it depends. (laughs) Um, And I think they are easy to identify 
if the teacher, if the person who's in the role of the teacher has had some opportunity to get background information about who the gifted are and how to serve them. What are the characteristics? And most teachers with a four-year bachelor's degree have had not one class period in four years devoted to the gifted and talented. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. And they can't be held accountable for what they don't know and have never been taught. That's not fair. But the truth is, with a, a modest amount of instruction in the characteristics of who the gifted are, you know, breaking breaking through the stereotype and looking at some ways of looking at kids um, that it becomes a matter of being able to recognize those kids, even without, even without um, the benefit of a, of a, of a COGAT or an end of grade test or an SAT, you, 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 you begin to recognize it through their behaviors um, and it's, but it does take some observation. It does take, you know, being open to looking for it. Um, it doesn't always come up and gobsmack you. Sometimes it's very subtle, especially <laughs> with gifted girls. They will tend to want to emphasize their social acceptance with their peers and will often camouflage what they are able to do, hide that passion. Um, so as not to be seen as being too different. You want to be different, but you don't want to be too different. But it is, um, it, it can be easy to recognize giftedness uh, by the fact that these kids typically produce. They're, 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 they are writing their own poetry. They are drawing their own art. They are craft. They're not playing Minecraft. They're disassembling the code to create a whole new game. They're, they're, they're creative in what they do. And if you start looking for those kinds of things, that begins to show up. Something that you said about how if, you know, if there was some focus put on identifying these gifted students, because I just think about the types of professional, professional development that we get, and it's never focusing on those gifted students ever. So, and there's and no that incentive. Comes from the top. There's no incentive for teachers to seek professional development in the area of gifted either. You know, like you don't get um, extra money for being AIG certified. You don't get, there's just no incentive to go dig deeper and learn more. You know, if your plate's already full, why are you going to put more on it for no gain? And in fact, there's a disincentive in that mm. all the pressure from administration is about bringing up the low scores, looking at the bubble kids and working harder for them, totally disregarding the gifted kids. Yes, the bubble kids. Yeah. Every year we have lots of conversations about our bubble babies. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so what would you say are like the early indicators of um, I I think... Um, who the student engages with when they're given the flexibility to do it. Typical kids are, are drawn like a magnet to others of the same age within, you know, 12, 24 months of each other, plus or minus a year. A gifted kid will go with either the much older kid because they share an intellectual peerdom or much younger kids because they can influence the younger kids. Mm. And then they like to engage and be, they get to be seen as an adult in a way that when they're with their age mates, they're never allowed to be seen as, you know, an adult. And a, so it's, and it's not about authority. It's about, it's about the role that you get to play. The other thing that is always watch what they're reading. Not every gifted kid is a reader, but I can tell you that those kids who do read, just check out what they're reading. And if they read above grade level stuff, or if they read a lot of fantasy, science fiction, that's something that resonates with gifted kids. And then talk with them about it. Ask them what they think about it. And when they just relate the plot, great. But when they start talking about themes like mm. justice or, uh, you know, predestination, they want to know, or what happens after you die, the kinds of questions they ask can, can give you a really good hint. Again, they don't, gifted kids don't do things nobody does. What calls them to our attention is they do things that we would typically expect of a much older youngster. That's what makes them gifted. 
I, I'm just kind of thinking about how every year I I struggle to find reading material for my gifted learners because it's so hard to find these books that are challenging them, you know, with literacy skills, but also are like appropriate. I I have an answer for that question that Ooh. you may not like, and you're welcome to totally disregard it. Okay. But for students who are, my, my group is fifth grade, fifth grade and, and middle school, but my favorite group is fifth grade. But for fourth, fifth and up, put a classic in their hands. Because with classics, you have books of Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, Louisa May Alcott. You've got books that were written for adults mm. that have adult level vocabulary uh, and syntax and interesting plots. But you never run into those thematic things that, you know, you don't want to give a, a, a fifth grader who can read Catcher in the Ride shouldn't be reading or, or the Grapes of Wrath. It's, they're just that thematic thing, I think, is well addressed if you if you get those classic authors, put those books in their hands. I love that. I think we're, we're doing um, Frank Mary Shelley's Frankenstein this year, and I'm excited. Excellent. I think I'm excited about doing that one. But I will say that I do have a couple parents who are hypersensitive, like didn't want them reading um, their kindergartner reading Charlotte's Web because one of the character dies at the end. They don't want their child to read anything to do with death. And it's so hard to convince these parents that your kid can handle it, you know? And also, well, you're, you've got pets in your home. What are you going to do mm-hmm. when your pet dies? Yeah, you know? those parents are in denial or language. My child shouldn't hear that language, read yes. that language. And they, your child hears that in the cafeteria every day. Come yes. on. But they're not in touch. But my, my response is always, the parent may not always be right, but the parent is always the parent. Exactly. And I'm always, and I'm always mm-hmm. willing to give an alternative book to the student. Yes. What happens is the kid winds up reading Charlotte's Web anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to talk to their classmates about it too. Yep. So I would never withhold the book, but I would offer an exchange and, and let that address the parent's concern. I love it. Yeah, sometimes easier said than done. True. <laughs> True. But it's it's definitely worth trying. Well, um, and at the risk of sounding like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, I <laughs> do think we owe our kids more than their parents would have them have in terms of ideas and ideals. And they need to explore more broadly than some parents would have them explore. The question is, what hill are you willing to die on? Exactly. And I, we had a book in, in Forsyth County. We came up with a canon for our gifted program district-wide. And one of the third grade books was called The Wish Giver. And The Wish Giver is kind of a magic story where kids go to a carnival to get a ticket, kind of like Willy Wonka, and they can make a wish. And the wish comes true, literally, which creates all kinds of fantastical problems well it's a it's a cute little book it's got some great issues about you know cause and effect but there were some parents who objected because of the magic and for them magic was an unacceptable thing because of their religious values well i'm not going to die on the hill of the wish giver i will die on the hill of huckleberry finn or to kill a mockingbird Mm. it it just Mm. is a matter of what what will you stand for and what will you not stand for? I love it. Pick and choose your battles. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Our final myth, gifted children are well-behaved. Truth or myth? Um, I think all kids are well-behaved until they're not. <laughs> and gifted kids are no more inclined to misbehave than other kids they um and i clarifying this too i think there there are two different issues here one is conduct and one is behaviors related to um how they comport themselves in in kind of like what we what we've kind of lumped into the idea of executive functions 
So there's conduct and most gifted kids are smart enough to know what's expected of them and they meet those expectations. Their conduct typically is very good. Yes, there will maybe, hopefully never, but there may be a kid who's a gifted sociopath in your class who really is one of those who goes behind other kids and causes trouble and then steps back and watches. That kind of evil. The kid who uses a sense of humor to torment other people by making fun of physical features or whatever, that cannot be tolerated. And it cannot be accepted on the basis, well, he's a gifted kid. That's just how he does it. Absolutely not. Being gifted is never an excuse for not conducting yourself according to social norms and standards, period. Gifted is not an excuse. But gifted kids typically do tend to be well-behaved. Again, sometimes I think a Sheldon Cooper look is, is misunderstood because he doesn't get the body language. We have a lot of kids on the spectrum who can't read facial expressions. of They're highly gifted, but they just don't get what it means when you're frowning or you're looking for more body dis, uh, social distance and they're closing in because they want to be close. Those kinds of things that come up are addressable and, and they're fixable. Um, the other kind of conduct or other well-behaved is, is those executive functions, being organized, yes. uh, timeliness. No, I don't care how gifted you <laughs> are. If the deadline is Friday, the deadline is Friday. You don't get a pass just because you're gifted. I, I've had parents who will ask for that. So um, We have kids who organize by files and kids who organize by piles. And the key is if when you need it, you can, you, you've got to have that permission slip for the field trip and you go to your piles and you pull it right out. And there it is. There's nothing wrong with that. Even though you want to say, what time did the bomb go off? The piles are okay. The problem is when the student can't retrieve the things they need, whether they're using files or piles, they need coaching in that so that they are successful with the choices they make about how to organize things. But that's the whole executive function aspect rather than conduct. There's so many things that you've said that made me think of so many students. Like I have had so many students go through my brain about like, you talk about conduct and like, I feel like some behaviors are really truly one thing. And yet in a school setting, it's looked at as like, you're not following the rules. Like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and they're doing what they, and I don't, I don't know. There's like so many different things you said. Like, um, I feel, I, I think of those students who talk to their, talk back to their teacher, but they're not talking back. They're talking back mm. to their teacher, maybe saying something else. Like maybe like when you talked about how, like if the kid knows more on a topic or a subject, mm-hmm. And that takes a, an adult stepping back and like having some humility, you know, like maybe they do know more or like their delivery of the information maybe wasn't the best. Like maybe they did make, you know, say it in maybe a, a certain way. I also thought about how, when you said like piles and I'm thinking about when you have a classroom of all these children, like there's a lot of times we'll say like your desk needs to look like this. So it's neat and organized. And so you can get what you need to get when you need it. And I'm just sitting here feeling like, geez, cause I do that. But I'm thinking of, like you said, piles. I mean, adults are like that. We have, you know, Hannah may do things a certain way and she's got it together, (laughs) but it may not like in my mind think like, this is not what it needs to look like, but still like are successful. And it just, wow. I'm thinking about my kids now, like just having that understand it all goes back to the understanding and like yes and willingness to learn about why the, the students are doing that and how it's not exactly what it looks like well and I think when we have these kids that are gifted and are getting in trouble with their behavior I think a lot of times it stems from them either being a bored because they're not being challenged in the classroom and so like what else is the kid supposed to do with themselves for your 30 minute reading lesson when they know all of their letter sounds And then B, um, that piece of giftedness where we see kids being twice exceptional. So ADHD, autistic, and when you're ADHD, you know, the stimming and all the executive functioning pieces, the organization, I definitely am a piles kind of gal, not a files. And you would look at my area and go, oh my gosh, that's a hot mess. But if you ask me where something is, I know right where it's at. (laughs) 
And as an adult, you have license to make that choice. Yes. It's unfortunate that most kids aren't given the choice of being able to do that as long as they can demonstrate, as you said, being able to pull out what they need. Yes. And it, and it is hard, you know, because in the elementary classroom, like we'll have the desk fairy that comes at the end of the day and we'll leave a sweet treat on a desk for someone who's got their um, desk organized, like it's matching the poster that's up on the wall. And then you get these kids that it's not organized and the desk fairies never visiting them, but that's not necessarily fair because they come to the carpet for math time prepared every day. That's you know, they, the they know exactly where it is. So um, I think that's something that teachers really need to consider with the kids that are in their classroom is, are you being fair to, I guess their, their needs? Cause at that point it's not a want, it's a need in order for them to be organized. They cannot follow your poster that's up on the wall it's just mm-hmm. it's pain literally painful for them and is that a hill you're t- willing to dive on like <laughs> yes. that's really what's so important yes exactly all right we are coming to the end um we had listed a couple questions that we wanted to ask you just in case we never touched on them mm-hmm. and i don't know if we sent them to you so if you'll just give us a second to you read did. through you did we did. Okay. Were there any of those questions on, because we want to respect your time as well. Were there any of those no, questions? My time, my time is yours. So whenever okay. you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm wide open, open-ended as far as the schedule goes. And, and you may want to trim this down to two and we can, we can incorporate the extra stuff in it for like a second. Yeah. And I think we, we definitely are going to have to go for two, but it'll be, it, it'll be perfect. And that'll That's also great. buy us more time mm-hmm. and drop in the podcast episodes. Um, and though we already kind of spoke to similarities and differences between gifted students, that was something that you spoke to earlier. Um, of any of those questions, were there any that you felt sh- like you really wanted to speak to? Um, the, the characteristics associated with different types of giftedness. Um, Yes. And I would say that the characteristics as far as how it manifests are not. Can we ask you the question? Yes. Uh Okay. Catherine, you want to fire that one? Sure. All right. So what are the characteristics associated with different types of giftedness, such as intellectualism, creativity, and leadership? Um, I think going back to 1972, the the Secretary of Education uh, at the time, Sidney Marland, uh, pushed through one of the first federal legislative acts on giftedness. And it was a breakthrough event because for the first time, uh, giftedness was identified in terms of more than just an IQ score. For half a century, IQ was the determinant of giftedness, whether you performed or not. And it was only in that domain that it was assessed for identification for programs. Um, Sidney Marland in the federal definition said, yes, aptitude or intelligence is one area, but there's also academic performance, outstanding academic performance and creativity and leadership and performance in in the fine arts that there's artistic giftedness. Um, This was a breakthrough idea. And it came about in part because of growing dissatisfaction with with IQ as uh, the sole measure of giftedness because we were seeing it wasn't evenly distributed across all populations. It wasn't very highly predictive of adult real world performance. What it was predicted of was academic success. Your, your IQ is highly correlated with your performance in academics, which is why we still use it extensively in education, particularly as we look at uh, eligibility of students for services in programs for kids with disabilities. We still have that measure to start with to say, how is the student doing and how does that match up with their expectation measured by the IQ? Well, we went way beyond that. And they said these other areas like performing arts, being being an artist, uh, being a leader. But I think the characteristics that exist 
and a gifted individual in each of those domains. First of all, the domains overlap. They aren't isolated and, and clearly separated. There is overlap. And secondly, they can exist more than one in one person. And I think it's still grounded in the person's ability to reason, to problem solve, to take pers- to get a perception of what's going on. And from that, develop a perspective about what to do in response to that. A situation where does do the times make the man or does the man make the time in terms of leadership? The, what you perceive is needed, do you step in to fill that gap and work, whether it's local PTA or leader of the United Nations? That attribute that makes you successful, they're still all grounded in the same thing. So I think what we see is manifestation of giftedness in the talented performance of academics, the talented performance of leadership, talented performance in the arts. But it's all still grounded in a in a foundation of intellectual giftedness. And um, as Stephen Jay Gould wrote in The Mismeasure of Man, the IQ test is fallible. It's It's not something that we can just Take it once and assume that's it forever and ever and amen. That's not the way it works. It's developmental. So what would you say are different factors that could affect the development of of giftedness? I like what Joe Renzulli says when he's promoting his his outstanding model for serving gifted kids in in the school-wide enrichment model. He talks about kids being given opportunities resources, and encouragement within that domain that is there, like your passion, that you're given opportunities, but it's, it's, a, it's an open-ended opportunity. It's not just here's this task, do it, but it's how far beyond this can you go? I'm going to give you fractions, but can you turn that into, you know, the introductory algebra? What are you ready for? Where can you go with this? And then the resources. I want to give you um uh, what was it? Hands-on equation, the the equipment to actually do algebra graphically, um, tactily, so that age-wise it's developmentally appropriate, and and you've got the materials here to develop your algebraic skills, and then encouragement, not to say you know at any point you're done, but to ask what would you like to do next? What's Ooh, next? And I like how can that. I get you to that? How can I get you to that? I think one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of of quality teaching without telling the whole story, I'll just say at at each juncture as a student working with the gifted resource teacher aged up year after year after year, what ultimately became a book at each juncture research and the first writing illustrations and things that teachers said, well, what do you want to do next? What does a real, what does a person publishing a real book do next do you what do you want to do and the kid really had a legitimate choice she could have just stopped and say I'm done that's good enough but she also had the opportunity to take the next step had that encouragement okay what next the what next becomes that encouragement I love that so something that regular setting classroom teachers can that's so simple yes for something that they can do absolutely to just question their kids what next Put the ball in their court. I love that. Right. And the gifted kid will take that ball and run with it. Yes. A typical kid will say, what do I have to do to get a good grade? 100%. Wow. Um, Okay. So we've talked about a lot and a lot of different myths and so many different things that have been like red flags for me of like, wow, that's so scary that that's so true. And so many people really think that, um, but of all the characteristics and misconceptions that we've discussed today, what do you feel is the most common and which one do you feel can do the most damage? Um, there, there is one with a bullet and that one is all children are gifted. Mm. Now, 
All children are precious. Every child is unique. Every child should be valued and loved. Every child should have an opportunity for a year's worth of growth for a year, a year in school and should never be shortchanged. But the notion that all children are gifted is one of those things that people say to feel good, but has no basis in truth whatsoever. Now, all children have strengths. And that child's strength should be nurtured to the maximum possible level for that child. That as an individual, though, will never fall outside the realm of what's typical, what's normal. Gifted kids perform at a level that, even if it isn't world-changing, it's jaw-dropping and that they're doing something you wouldn't expect for two, three, or four more years. They're doing it now. They're able to do it now. Piaget was right in the stages, but he was off on some of his ages by virtue of, you can have early onset of formal reasoning. My little guy who was doing pre-algebra, he, he grokked algebra. He understood where I was in ninth grade, still trying to be concrete. X is X. How can it be something else? Yeah. Gifted kids are able to do much more at an early age. And that's what calls them to our attention. And to say that all kids are gifted makes no more sense than saying all children are tall. Mm-hmm. Gifted is a relative term. It's a comparison of what the individual is able to do, as we say in our state legislation, when compared to others of the same background experience. Um, that's, it's, it's looking at them compared to others. And that's what makes a difference. And the problem is there's no one bright line. Determine like two standard deviations above the norm. It sounds very scientific and you've got a hard line at 130 IQ. But the behaviors of gifted kids are on a, on a continuum. Somewhere we have to say this kid is not being served by the standard course of study. This kid needs an opportunity for an advanced level of study and let's get it for her. Beautiful. That is, that is beautiful. Um, so Rick, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they wanted to reach out about anything that we've spoken on today? How can they get in touch with you? Probably the best way is good old email. Um, okay. And and it's our court right without a, without a W in court right. It's just like basketball court right. Um, our court right at ncagt.org. Beautiful. And I'm, I am happy to talk individually or group wise or whatever. Um, this is my passion. This is what I've given my educational career to. And, and uh, I love, as you can tell, I love to talk about gifted kids. Well, we are thankful for you for sure. Yes, definitely. You've said so many things that I feel like I didn't even realize I was wondering about. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it all makes sense. Like I totally get what you're talking about. Like so helpful and just so eye-opening on so many different topics. Well, and leaving um, us with so many more questions too, and yeah. ideas of things that we need to pathways, but that we need to dig deeper into. I would love to, um, the idea of interviewing one of the gifted, when I asked you about the student profiles and you mentioned two people, it would be very interesting to hear from one of those two people. Are you in contact still with either? No, sadly, one of sadly, um, one of those individuals was in the 1990s and one was in the 1980s and the other was in the 1970s. They are now adults. I know them. I mean, I know one is a professor at Duke. Um, I'm very sad to say, um, <laughs> being a Carolina man, <laughs> um, I've lost touch with the other, but, um, I think there probably are folks within any given community where you could just, that's, and that's one of the things that I think is missing for us right now. We have lost, um, and again, you can edit all of this out if you wish, but we, we've lost, uh, we've lost a gold mine of support for parents of gifted kids in that the organizations that used to be in place in counties around the state page, parents for the advancement of gifted, or I guess it was referred to then 
most recently as Partners for the Advancement of Gifted Education, parent groups who would get together and, and talk about issues related to giftedness within their school district and community. It was great to have a chance to talk to parents saying, God, I'm dealing with the same thing. It's not just me. I'm not alone in this. The problem is PAGE as an organization and concept tends to be very crisis driven. That when things are not going well for the gifted population, PAGE groups form and advocacy takes place to bring about a better situation. But when things are going well, and I think with Article 9B, in place, most districts, things are going pretty well. There isn't the same kind of, uh, there's certainly no urgency and there isn't much to reinforce coming together because most people are, are pleased with what's going on in their district. But yeah, there could be more, but at the same token, there's not some sense that it's inadequate or ineffective and, and we've got to do something about this. It's, it's not that there is, we're lacking that sense of urgency, which is kind of good news because people are pleased. But as you were saying about our K-3 or the lack of opportunity for K-3 students, there are, there are not enough folks who are invested in that. Yes. Well, and, and I think too, that there are a lot more, um, there are a lot of families that are fleeing the public system and they're, they're going to private schools. There's, I don't know, more private schools and virtual opportunities and things like that for families now than there ever has been before. I, I, I think, would you, do you think that's true? That there's I think it's absolutely true. And I, and I have to resist and I will, I will resist getting political about it, but I will say that part of the problem is because of the accountability model, mm. because of the bubble kids. Because we have stopped teaching to the high end of the class, we've started teaching to the middle or the low, because we only teach the standards, which were intended to be the baseline, not the goal. But because we're only teaching to the standards, it's understandable, not just parents, not parent, not only those who are parents of gifted kids, but parents of kids who are above average. Yeah. Want and need more. Because the standards and the focus on bubble kids and, and honestly, the dumbing down of curriculum, the way things are being taught, I would be fleeing. I was very fortunate. My daughter had a great public school education, but I was in a position to be able to make some choices about which school system. Most parents don't even have a choice about which school. And, and we, without that choice in the district, parents are opting when they can for charter or private schools. And it's great to have a private school option, but it, it shouldn't be based just on your ability to access a quality education. It shouldn't just be based on your parents' income. No, absolutely not. Um, and I, and I do know too, that another concern in the public world is that in a lot of these schools, you're getting parents that are complaining or donating money and you're getting high achievers um, in pub, in the gifted classes, in the AIG program, not necessarily gifted children. You're just getting the kids that are high achievers mm-hmm. and, those, and it's kind of flooding the, the program. And then it keeps those kids who actually are gifted from receiving the instruction that they need in those AIG courses. Um, I don't know how we got here, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have one final question last for you. Question, yes. Um, so the last thing we want to talk about is the divide that the term giftedness causes. And I feel like we've talked a lot about that. Um, sometimes it can lead to misconceptions, which we've talked about today, um, and can even prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes, which is really what we've touched on so much today. Um, do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? Um, The term gifted is problematic and I would not rename it. The problem isn't the term. Words are words. And, um, you know, going back to the early days of IQ testing and, and addressing the needs of individuals with developmental delays, cognition uh, disabilities, 
that there was a time when moron and idiot were clinical terms. They came out of the clinic into the general parlance and became conversational. And it was no longer seen as a, a good way to address. You don't call somebody an idiot. You don't call somebody a moron. <laughs> so we came up with a new term and that was retarded. Well, now it's offensive to use the term retarded because it left the clinical setting or the educational setting and became part of the general parlance and slang and insult. So you're a retard now. So we've gone to a different term yet again, which cognitively impaired or uh, cognitive disability, but it just, we struggle because what happens is whatever term is used in the best professional sense winds up getting abused in the general population. I don't think we need a different word for gifted. I think we need a different level. Well, I do think we need agreement within the profession on what's gifted and what's talented. So we're clear about that. And then I also think uh, that what we need to do is to help the general population disabuse themselves of the notion of, of Sheldon Cooper being gifted, that the stereotype is what hurts more than the particular word. So what needs to be done isn't to change the word. What needs to be done is informing the public about what giftedness really is, as opposed to the stereotype. That was such a good answer. Like that <laughs> so made me think, wow, of like how much, I don't know, I feel like lately me and Hannah talk a lot about intention. Um, and I think that's what it goes to. It's like, what were people's intention when using those words? And the t intention, you know, when people are discussing things like gifted, they have one intention and other people might use in a completely different way and it ruins it, like pollutes the word. Yes. So that's, I, I love the way that you explain that. Very unique way of looking at it. Absolutely. Well, Rick, we asked you all of our questions. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and being patient with us. I'll just, I'll just say I would enjoy working with the two of you on basically anything you want to talk about. So oh, awesome. I am here for you to use and abuse with, uh, <laughs> um, in, you know, uh, infinite enthusiasm for what you're doing. Really excited to hear about what's next. Hey, thank we you so much. It. This has been a treat. <laughs>